going to go into the message for today. Um, last weekend, I was actually at uh, a church, visiting a church in uh, in the L.A., I don't even know, it was OC, um, and they had this interesting display right outside of their sanctuary in the lobby. Can we have the f- second slide, I guess, the second slide? And it was like this. It was like right up out in the lobby where people kind of like just pass through, and it is, you know, a banqueting table, really elaborate. And um, I find it really cool. They put this out not just because they have time to spare. It's actually promoting an outreach ministry that they have. And so it's their outreach ministry. It has nothing to do with to, to you with you guys, but you'll get my point. It's actually called the King's Table. And what they do is they pair up individuals with people um, that are homeless, actually. And they have them meet together for, for a meal. And the whole point is you and I are brother and sister. There's no disparity there. In the kingdom of God, all of us, you know, are valued, are treasured, and we get to spend, you know, spend time together and share a meal together as brother and sister. And it's like a really, really beautiful uh, way to kind of bring reconciliation and bring unity in the body of Christ. And I just thought it was really, really cool to see a community kind of embarking in that journey. Um, the reason why I share this is because the idea of a banqueting table has kind of been percolating in my mind for the last three, four weeks or so. And a few weeks ago, Pastor David, he preached a message titled um, The Invitation of the Father. And actually for today and the next weeks to come, I'm going to be building up on that message as well. So today's message is titled, If This Works, which, yes, Come to the Feast. This is the first part. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to Luke 15. Luke 15. Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. We're going to do something interesting today. How about, because everybody has different versions of the Bible, and if we all read it together, you kind of get distracted by that. How about we try this? It might work. It might be just as distracting. We're going to read in silence for like, I'll give you two minutes, maybe three minutes for the slow readers. Three minutes, okay? (laughs) From 11 to 32, just take three minutes to kind of silently read through it and just take mental note of different things that kind of, um, kind of jump out at at you. All right. Hopefully most people are are done with the 30. It's, it's pretty well known and I'm sure that you've read it a few times already. Um, and so to give you a little bit of context, this, this, um, parable is not just out of the blue. It's not like, Hey, Jesus has an idea and I'm just going to teach about this random thing. It's actually in response to a particular situation that he was in. So for that, to know that we need to go back a few verses back to the beginning of a chapter. And it says, then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. Um, so this is the first thing that happens. Jesus shows that he has a way of drawing certain kind of people to himself. And yet at the same time, he also has a way of offending people as well. He's drawing certain people and he's offending different people as well. So we see tax collectors and sinners, people who are social outcasts, actually sharing a meal together with Jesus. And Jesus is looking them you know, in the eye, and he's acknowledging their presence. He's valuing who they are. And this is highly, highly offensive to people who are part of the religious establishment. In their minds, they're not worthy of that kind of treatment. Like, they shouldn't be treated as an equal. 
They're very much at the bottom of the social ladder. They're very much at the bottom of the, the food chain. And they have no business sitting there with a teacher, with a rabbi. So this was very, very offensive to the religious establishment, mainly uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. So while the tax collectors and sinners, they drew near to this man, Jesus, other people kind of, it kind of made them take a step back away from him. And they were very offended and they complained to him. This was coming from a very deep seated belief that they themselves deserved to be there while others didn't. And so what happens when Jesus see, sees this, he says, so because of that, so he spoke this parable to them saying, and so he goes into three different parables. The first one is he talks about a sheep owner that loses a sheep. And so this sheep owner, he leaves 99 of his sheep in order to look for this one. And once he does, he gathers people around him to rejoice and celebrate. Look, I was looking for this one sheep. I have 99. Yes, I know. But this one that I was missing, I finally found. And I want everybody to come alongside me and rejoice and celebrate that I have found this sheep. The second parable is about this woman who loses a coin. Now, I don't know how much a coin really, you know, it must have been like a check nowadays, right? Because it's a lot of money. Because this woman sweeps and looks around her entire house. And once she finds this coin, again, in the same way that someone who lost her sheep rejoices, this woman also did the same. She finds it. She calls neighbors to rejoice with her as well. So there's quite an emphasis first on loss of something, then searching, finding, and then the last part of the celebration part. There's always a celebration there. And so for today's uh, portion, we're starting in verse 11. And this is where Jesus says, and he opens up this third parable. And he says, there was a man who had two sons. There's a man who had two sons. Now, if you're paying attention to the last two parables, one person is defined as owning sheep. And when the sheep is found, it seems to be like the most va valuable possession they have so that the, when it's found, they rejoice. Same thing with the woman. She's described as a woman who lost a coin. It means almost like her identity is wrapped up around this. And this is one of the most valuable things that she owns. And this, we, then we move to this third one when it describes a man who had two sons. And it's fair to assume the two sons that he had were, the, were his most prized possession. This is what was most valuable to him. It's a man that is defining himself as someone who has two sons. And, and then it says, the younger of them said to his father, he says, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And this is all you need to know about the younger son. This is kind of, that kind of paints a picture of the kind of person that the younger son is. That tells me that whether he felt smothered or coddled or restrained or whatnot, there's something in him that says there's something better for me out there away from my family. There's something better away from my family and from my father in particular. I want to live for myself. I want to find myself. I'm tired of this. They're holding me back. Whatever the case is, he has a frustration in his life. And this leads him to ask for his share of the inheritance. And this is happening before his father dies. I don't know if, I don't know about your relationship with your parents, but if you were ever to ask that from your parents, what do you think your parents would give you? Not your inheritance. <laughs> like, you know, like not your inheritance. Like, oh yeah, you want, you want to get what is coming to you. You're not going to get a penny. Um, and it's the same back in the day as well. 
So this is before the father dies and his son basically says, I want what you have and what's coming to me. I don't really need you. It tells us that he doesn't even want to wait for his father to die for him to get his due. And then surprisingly, what the father does is he actually divided his property between them. He actually divides his property and he gives the younger son his share. The father actually doesn't owe him anything very easily. He could have said no, right? It's as easy as that. Like, no, thanks. But no, you know, he could have just said no. And that would be the end of it. And yet for some particular reason, we see him actually dividing his property and giving the younger son his share. Now, it would take a lot of time to actually do that. It's not just like, I'm going to look at my bank account and the number that is there, I'm going to have, and then I'm going to EFT it. You know, I'm going to do it on my mobile. That's not how it works. It wasn't just money, but it was also property. It was like sheep. How do you divide a sheep? I don't know, like different, like tangible goods that were actually also needing to be divided. So it took several days. And then not many days later... We see that once he finally got what he wanted from his dad, what, once he finally got what he was waiting for in premeditated fashion, he ex- executes his plan. And we see what the younger son had in his heart all along. And that is to get as far away from his family as he could. And he doesn't just live there and settle there and make friends there, but he intentionally, he squanders. So he wastes, he intentionally misused all of that hard earned money from a lifetime of toil on his father's end. And he didn't just squander it in anything. He actually squandered it in reckless living. That is a very polite way of saying all kinds of debauchery and shenanigans or whatever you want to call it as if his actions had no consequences as if he'd never have to bear account of how he lived and as if he were on the self-destructive mode like he was he was you know on a mission like he was i'm going to spend all the money i'm going to have as much fun as i can i'm going to get away from my family as far as i can and he was on this journey now there comes a point when he has to kind of reap what he's sown right When he had spent everything, there comes a point when all of that comes to an end, when he actually has no money left. And when this happens, something else happens at the same time. It coincides with national crisis happening to that very same country he chose to escape to. So it's like, it's like you're down to your last dollar. Then all of a sudden recession hits in that very same city that you're at. And so these two things coincide. And for the first time in his life, he began to be in need. He had never known need until then. He had never known somebody saying no to him until that moment. He had never been hungry, broke, and alone before. So he began to be in need. He began to become desperate. And survival instincts kick in. And he does what he once thought of to as unthinkable. And that is that he hired himself out (coughs) to a person from that particular country to do what people from his what uh, to do something that people from his very own country would never have done especially because of kosher laws and that was that his role would be to feed pigs pigs are unclean animals in jewish eyes right unclean animals according to jewish purity law so this is like the rock bottom of the rock bottom like there's no nowhere else to go down, right? 
we had this, we kind of saw it coming, right? We kind of saw it coming, but everything that defined who he was before his wealth, his friendships, uh, his autonomy, his national identity, all of that is gone. And he's almost unrecognizable. And he reaches this point. And then it goes on to say, and as he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, it's like even more rock bottom. Like I want, it's not only that it's an unclean animal. I would want to be that unclean animal, right? It's like, at least they get food. Like I want to be that pig right now. So he was longing to be fed with the pods of the, that the pigs ate. And yet no one gave him anything again for the first time in his life. There was no one to show him pity, no one to lend him a hand. All the friends that were there when he had money to spend on reckless living, they're now long gone. All the people he was asking favors from, all the people loaning, that he was loaning money from, begging from, they're all gone. And he finds himself asking for scraps that even unclean animals ate. And even then, no one gave him anything. And this was something that was happening to him for the first time in his life. I don't know if you guys have ever been through a season like that. And with a room this size, I'm pretty sure a fair share of you have experienced that rock bottom. It can look in different ways. It can look like relational, you know, bankruptcy. It can look like emotional depression. It can look like things at your workplace or your career not working out. It can look like your family is falling apart. There's ways in which we've all experienced a rock bottom of some way. And the great thing about that is that Jesus doesn't paint it as the end of the story. He paints it as an opportunity for repentance. He paints it as an opportunity to now, finally, now that you've exhausted all of your own strategies and all your own ways in which you want to live your life, there comes this opportunity when you've hit rock bottom, we can start leaning on God once again. So for this younger son, he has this moment. It says, when he came to himself, it's this moment of realization that perhaps, perhaps, perhaps there's a faint glimmer of hope for salvation is time glimmer of hope of rescue from his imminent death. And he thinks of home for the very first time in a long time. Now, let me ask you this question. Is it a noble purpose that leads him there? Not particularly, right? It was, he was just hungry. You know, it wasn't like, Oh, I've, you know, I've like thought about everything. No, it was just, he was hungry. And he thought the only person who might not turn him away was his dad, you know? And so it wasn't particularly a noble or righteous reason for him to want to go home. He was just hungry. But at the same time, isn't it comforting to know that as low a motive as physical hunger, it isn't too low for God to receive us. I don't know what your journey has been like with the Lord, but I wasn't like, there, you know, I want to live a life of righteousness. And that's why I'm going to pursue. No, that, that wasn't it. You know, I felt dissatisfied with my life. I felt like things weren't going my way. And I was looking to God as a solution for something else. And yet God in his mercy, he looked at that broken state and he saw those, even those warped motives for me to come to him. And he nonetheless received me. He nonetheless took me in. He didn't inter interrogate me like, why are you really here? You know, is it for my blessings? Are you going to do what I tell you? He didn't do that. He just warmly embraced me and took me as I was. And from there on, it was a journey of getting to know who he was. 
Isn't it comforting that that's the kind of God that we worship? Even though we have a low motive to turn to him, he still takes that as enough of a reason to accept us and to bring us into his house. And so this is what the younger son, this is what he says. This is my game plan. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you say so he's a plan and a speech ready, he will grovel for mercy and he will have this whole thing ready. And he'll say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now we're going to pause here just for a second, because this is a very interesting statement for him to say. He's basically saying, I'm not worthy to be a son now, as if in the past he was. You understand? There's a sense in which like before this major screw up, I actually deserve to be there. I actually deserve my father's love. I actually deserve half of the inheritance. I actually had earned my right to be there. And so in his mind, somewhere in his subconscious, it's this idea that like up until this major point in my life where I kind of screwed up big time until then though, I was good. You know, I fully deserve the rights of a son. I fully deserve the love of my father as if in the past he was worthy of all that. So we need to pause here for a second because we typically, typically we peg the younger son as a rebellious one. And then the elder son as the religious one, but this is a religious mindset as well. So we see that religious mindset, both in the younger and in also the elder son, we say, you know, we tend to say like, oh, this, this, the, the younger son, he was just, he just wanted to get out there and do all the damage he could. And then he came repentant, but somewhere, somewhere in his subconscious, he was still pretty religious as well. The older brother is also rebellious in his own way. And the younger brother is also religious in his own way. And so here we see the younger son's religious mindset. What I've done my actions overwhelm and they overturn who I am in relation in relationship to my father. That's what it means. My standing before my father is dependent on my performance on what I do. And that is exactly what a religious mindset is. What determines the outcome is my actions and actually not my father's character. That's what he's saying. So he's saying sonship can be lost. I have to deserve my standing and I only qualify for servant status right now. If that, now this is a quote that I've shared before uh, here as well. And this is from Louis Giglio. This is what he says. Pretty brutal. If you're telling yourself you don't deserve a second chance from God, remind yourself you didn't deserve the first one either. It's like, Oh, (laughs) you're like, okay. Okay. All the religion there. It's like, it's diagnosing kind of our heart mindset. Our, our heart posture before the Lord as well. It's almost like up until this really bad sin, I was actually fully deserving of his love. But then after like post this major sin, now I kind of have to earn my way back. And that's not what the gospel is about. And so when we continue on this passage, he said, it says that the younger son, he arose and came to his father. And this is his greatest act of courage arising from where he was and going on his long journey back home. Remember, he was in a completely different country. It's not like he was around the corner. It's not like he could take a bus there or, or you know, line number two. He was in a different country. And he, he had to embark on this long journey back home, not really knowing whether he's going to be received or not. It was a faint memory of his home, the faint memory of his father. And that was enough hope for him to get up and to go. 
And then we see the turn of events. And this would have horrified everybody who's hearing this parable, who's hearing uh, Jesus say this parable. It says, while he was still a long way off, it means that the father was probably looking out for the return of his son day and night. So he is somewhere positioned somewhere where he could have seen way far in the distance and somewhere far in the distance, the father lays eyes on this small, distant, ragged figure that resembles his long lost son. And he felt compassion. He didn't feel anger. He didn't feel like, Oh man, I knew this was, he he didn't go into any of that. He felt compassion. Now for listeners, people who are hearing this parable, they are shocked because they think he has every right to be angry. He has every right to go to him, go right up to his face and, and say, I told you so. I knew you come crawling back for a second chance. I told you so. And instead of that, you see the father who saw him a long way off and felt compassion. Now, compassion, the the Greek word for it, it isn't just this like light, sentimental, you know, like, oh, it's not that. It's actually agonizing. So figurative, literally, I guess, literally, it's the picture of his intestines being cut open, literally like his bowels yearning. That's a very weird phrase to say, right? So his insides are like churning and they're in pain. That's what he felt the moment that he laid eyes on his son. And then to top it all, the father who was long ways off, he ran towards him. Now, back in the day, you know what they wore, right? They didn't wear jeans or like, you know, sneakers or things like that. They actually wore sandals and a tunic. And then they had undergarments under them. And it's, it's like the feeling of like women here, when you're wearing a dress and you're trying to catch a bus, it's like, you're like, you know, like you're trying to make sure that you don't flash everybody. It's kind of like that. But the father is like, I don't care if I flash everybody. Like that's how intent he was in getting to his son. So he picked up, basically, he picked up his tunic, he exposed his leg, which was a big no-no back in the day, and it was even more so for a highly esteemed man. So he exposed his undergarments, he exposed himself in a shameful, embarrassing way, he bore the shame in order to get to his son. Now that is very significant. And at the same time, this word, it's not just run, like I'm going to take a leisurely kind of jog, kind of the way I'm planning to do it for Oak Tree Run, where I'm like, I'm not racing anybody. I just, I'm going to get there. Um, it's, it's this idea of racing. He was racing almost like he was trying to beat the clock. And the reason for this, his motivation for doing that is that he needed to get to his son before other people did. Now, if you think about Jewish law and what happens Number one, to a son who spends his entire inheritance amongst foreigners and he now comes back for a second chance, there's this kind of ritual that happens is the village gathers around him. They take a clay pot filled with burnt beans. It's very cryptic. And they actually shatter it at his feet. This is a symbol of saying you are never going to be welcome here ever again. You're rejected from the city, you're rejected from this village. And this was probably what would have happened to him had the father not gone to him first. Second thing is if you look at Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21, it says, what happens to a son who is stubborn, 
who is stubborn and rebellious towards his parents. They don't listen to them when they're disciplined. What happens is the, the elders and the parents of this person, they have to take him before the city gates and they're to stone him to death. That there's, it's capital punishment that is due to someone who did what this youngish son did. And so there's this notion of the father. Yes, he's really happy to see him. And he is, you know, wanting to hold him in his arms as soon as possible. But there's also in, in the background, we need to understand that there's other things at play as well. If he hadn't gone first to his son, if he hadn't extended his acceptance and bore the shame on his behalf, then capital punishment was what was deserved on his end. And so we see how the father takes on the shame, the guilt. Probably after that, the entire town would have been like, what are you doing? Don't you know the law? Don't you know what he's deserving of? And so he would take that shame upon himself. So he ran to him. And then he embraced him. Literally, the Greek word for this is he fell upon the boy's neck. It's like he flung himself over him and then he kissed him. And it's not just like one little polite peck. Like kiss in, in, in the way that it's written here, it is kiss continuously and fervently. Like kiss over and over and over and over again as if he couldn't get enough. Like he, he just couldn't. He was overwhelmed with emotion. This is not the actions of a measured, calculated father who wants to make sure his son knows just how much he's hurt him. And he wants him to grovel and sulk and whatever. But this is, this is the action of an overwhelmed, bursting at the seams father who can't hold back. A father who doesn't care if he looks a fool, who doesn't care that the entire town will probably question his sanity. Well, they'll probably look at him and say, like, what in the world are, do you think you're doing? The entire town is probably going to look at him in a different way. And yet... He doesn't seem to care. He's bearing all of that shame, all of that guilt, almost as if he was taking the sin of his very own son and placing it upon himself. So these are five actions from the father. He saw him. He felt compassion for him. He ran to him. He embraced him. And then he kissed him again and again. And there were no words, at least from what we see here. This is how his actions truly speak louder than words. And what happens after... When the younger son, he can finally get him to stop kissing him long enough, you know, to get a word in, he launches, you know, into his practice speech. Yes. Yes. And the son said to the father, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He acknowledges that he has done something that is wrong, but also that he has hurt his father in the process. And he sees how the father has borne the pain of his departure, the cost of his squandered wealth, and also the shame of his return and the shame of his acceptance. And then once more, he says the phrase that he said before, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's saying, let me prove to you that I can earn my title as a son again. Put me on probation, but let me earn my way back in. Now, let me ask you, is this, a, is this a promise that he can keep? Most likely not. Can we do, can we do that? No. We can't live a life where we're constantly proving our worth to God over and over again. We're going to fail no matter what, sooner or later. 
But this is often the way that we think as Christians. We don't, it's not where here, this is often the way that we think as Christians as well, where we do perhaps good things, perhaps we do good things, and yet it is shame-based, guilt-based, performance-based, and it is in order to prove that we are worthy to be called his children. But then what happens? The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. And so he, it's not like he was like, okay, I'm going to wait for his speech to finish politely. And then he's like, shut up. Okay. Shut up. Zip. Okay. And he turns to servant. He says, bring quickly the best robe. So he's basically saying, I'm not going to waste any time on this. I'm not putting you on probation. I'm not going to wait for you to grovel and prove just how sorry you are. I'm not going to wait for you to clean yourself up. I want you with me right now. And so he quickly asked for the best robe. Now, this is a very interesting thing that, that he decides to ask for. It is, first of all, a very public and visible kind of article that he's asking for. And it's not just any robe. It's the best robe. This is a festive robe of honor that is, was actually reserved for guests of honor and dignitaries. And it's a visual reminder to everybody, everybody in the house. It's a visual reminder to everyone that the person wearing that robe, they are there by personal invitation from the father of the house. They hold a place of high honor in the father's eyes. And then whatever is underneath, it's covered by this robe. The father covered his nakedness, his shame, his dirtiness, and he elevated him higher than he ever thought he would be. He was just hoping, man, can I just get the status of a servant? And yet the father just embraces him, kisses him, and he covers him in the best robe. The robe speaks to him, you're forgiven. The father doesn't say it in words, you're forgiven, but he says it's an action. You're forgiven. And not only that, he gives him this, the, the ring. And it's not just any kind of ring. It's not an accessory. It's a signet ring, a family signet ring. It's a sign of identity and also authority. So if the robe says you're forgiven, the ring says you're family. You're family. The robe symbolizes his pardon, and the ring symbolizes his position as a son, full-fledged son in the house. And then he goes on to ask for shoes to be put on his feet. Why are shoes important? It's not a fashion choice. Like, oh, let's get something that matches the robe. You know, it's not that. It's not a fashion choice. It is a declaration of his freedom. And the reason for this is that in ancient days, slaves weren't given shoes to wear. You're barefoot. It's a sign of slavery. So the father putting shoes on his feet, he's saying you're free. Your debt as a slave, your identity as a slave, your yoke as a slave, all of that is wiped clean and you are free. And then to top it all, he asked to bring the fatted calf and to kill it. And he started up a party. The fatted calf is a calf groomed and reserved for the most important occasion, usually actually reserved for sacrifice unto God. So they would kind of groom this calf 
all year long. And then on an appointed day, they would, they would um, slaughter this and give it as an offering. So there was something that was reserved for the most important occasion. And the father of the house asked that this prized possession would be, quote unquote, wasted on this returning son. So he offers a feast for the son that's returned. The feast, you know, the robe says you're forgiven. The ring says you're family. The shoes say you're free. And now the feast says you're filled. You're filled. If you guys remember, he was there because of hunger. He was there because he had no other place to turn to. And just like in the two previous parables, there's a great celebration that follows the finding and recovering of something that was lost. The shepherd celebrated the recovery of his sheep. The woman celebrated the finding of her coin. And now the father celebrates the return of his son. To the father, the son had been, yes, physically distant, but also figuratively dead. And now he was found and he was alive once again. And when it says, let us eat and be merry, it's biblical language for let's party. Like we're going to party hard. Like, it's not like, oh, we're going to invite a few people. No, it's like, bring out everything. Call everybody. We're going to celebrate. It's going to be an over-the-top celebration because it's not a minor event for me. This is a major event. The son that I thought was lost and dead forever, he's now found and he's alive once again. This is not a father who's internally taking inventory of all that his son squandered. And he's not taking inventory of whether he still saw, he looks sorry enough or he, and he's not like, we'll have a party, but I want to see, I want to make sure that you look really, you know, like shameful and like, oh, you know, time with this, you know, like, no, he's not waiting for that. He doesn't want to make him feel indebted. He's one who's overwhelmed by the joy of finding his son again. Now we know that this is not the end of the story. This is only halfway through and we're going to reserve the second half for next week. We know that this is not the end of the story, but for today, we'll, we're just going to sit on this truth. We're going to sit on this truth that God is a God who clothes us with a robe of righteousness. When we come to him and we turn to him and he embraces us and he covers us in a robe of righteousness, he's saying you are forgiven no matter what you've done in the past. No matter how you squandered your wealth, your life, your talents, your relationships, whether it was knowingly or unknowingly, you're forgiven. Psalm 103, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We're not partially forgiven. We're fully forgiven. The second is we receive a ring. We're told that we are family. Galatians 3, it says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 4, it says, we've received the spirit of adoption, and the spirit of God is now in us, crying out, Abba, Father. You are family. Perhaps for those of you in this room, there might be a few of you guys here. For those of you who experience rejection from your family, God says you have family in God. For those who have experienced rejection from the world, God says you have family in God. For those who feel lonely and alone at times, you and at a loss, perhaps you've gone through grief, whatever the case is, God says you are 
family. Third, you are free. Christ Jesus has demolished every power and principality. And what used to hold you down, what used to yoke you and hold you in captivity and in bondage, no longer has power over you. You are free. In fact, John 8.36, it says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. What God has done, what Jesus has shed on the cross, it is enough to break those chains, to break you out of slavery and now into the position of someone who is free. And lastly, the feast, it says, you're filled. The prodigal was starving and penniless when he came back. And it wasn't his heart or his conscience that actually led him back to the father. It was his stomach, right? And yet the father met him at his level. And even so low a motive was accepted by him. And there was a satisfaction and a filling that came from partaking in restored relationship with the father. And it is the same with us as well. A life where we get to experience the closeness of the father is not a life that is filled with obligations and burdens and, oh, it's such a miserable way, but I'm going to suffer for the Lord. That's not the kind of life that God has in store for his children. It's a life, yes, that bears a cost. It's a life, yes, that goes to persecution and hardships and all of that, but there's joy in the journey. There must be joy in the journey. In his presence, we are filled with joy. There is a banqueting table laid before you. Your presence at that table is felt and is celebrated. There's a place for you at the table. No matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, no matter what brought you here, there's a place for you at the table.